Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week was a tough one in the national park system. Word came from Joshua Tree National Park that a hiker had died in temperatures approaching 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And there was destructive vandalism at a cave in Buffalo National River. And inbreeding has been detected in the mountain lion population that roams Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's program, we're going to dream a little bit about places in the park system we'd like to visit with hopes we can help you discover a new park destination. To launch this audio bucket list, we're looking towards Arizona and Parashant National Monument, which despite its more than 1 million acres, seems to fly below most park visitors' radar. Following that, we're going to continue to ponder the topic of species extinction and whether national parks can help slow the sixth mass extinction. We all have bucket lists for places in the national park system we like to visit. No doubt many have, or had, Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or Shenandoah on their bucket lists. But what about Parashant National Monument? Have you ever heard of it? Would you recognize it if we called it Grand Canyon Parashant National Monument? This lonely million-acre sweep of land is not for windshield visitors, but rather those seeking a place out of the past where the rugged beauty not only surrounds you, but also challenges your abilities to survive if you're not careful or prepared. There are no paved roads, no gas stations, no restaurants or lodges in Parashant National Monument. But visit this place and you'll find solitude, relics from Western history, and a remoteness to be embraced. To gain some insights into this wild land, we reached out to Jeff Axel, the monument's chief of interpretation. Welcome to The Traveler, Jeff. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Well, let's, let's get started by um, getting folks a little rooted in this national monument. Where is it? Why was it designated? And why isn't it simply part of Grand Canyon National Park? Uh, good question. So we are located on the Arizona Strip, the very northern western portion of the state of Arizona. And it's called the Arizona Strip because it's separated from the rest of the state by the Grand Canyon. And it was established back in 2000 by President Clinton. And the purpose to, for the establishment was to preserve these beautiful landscapes, very little development and fantastic scenery. Uh, it's one of the truly last, more or less undeveloped portions of the lower 48 states. It's a great place to get away and really, as you said, find that solitude. And um, quite honestly, couple places you can go, many places you can go to have a piece of the Grand Canyon all yourself. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. I mean, 20 years on, no paved roads, no um, amenities that people might expect, like a, a visitor center inside the monument or a, uh, a gas station or a lodge? That's right. Yep. And that's really designed that way to allow folks that want to visit to have that experience away from uh, the modern world, and you, you really are stepping back in time. You're going to look at your cell phone, it's going to say no service. And a lot of people, that can be very unnerving. 
but it's going to stay that way. The roads are going to continue to be unpaved and it's there for exploration, discovery, but also to challenge yourself because you do need to be well prepared to go out there. It's very rugged and the safety net of the modern world is, is far behind you. Yeah, yeah. Now, from the floor of the monument to its roof, um, the monument climbs 7,000 feet and along the way features a variety of ecosystems that run from the Mojave Desert to Ponderosa Pine Forests atop Mount Trumbull. That's quite a big slice of diversity you got there. You know, it really is. And for folks that like to look at the transition in biological communities going from the Mojave, which is a great thing to explore maybe between October and April, <laughs> a little hot right now. Um, we have fantastic Joshua tree forests and fantastic geology to explore. As you move up the uh, elevation, what you're really doing is you're going through the transition zone between the basin and range geologic province to our west, which is, for those that like geology, this area where the crust is extending, moving Western North America further to the west. It's a really interesting broken topography that uh, folks see in Nevada especially but we also have a good chunk of the Colorado Plateau. And so as you're moving up that transition zone from the basin and range up the Grand Wash Cliffs, which are stupendously beautiful from the uh, Grand Wash itself, you're looking up 5,000 feet down by uh, the river, the Colorado River, um, you get up on top and you move into the pinyon juniper, sage, black brush, and then into the ponderosas themselves. So you can really visit Parashant any time of year. We, in the winter, down the Mojave Desert is fantastic. In the summertime, you want to head up to Mount Trumbull, Mount Logan, up in those six, 7,000 foot elevation, uh, which is uh, fantastic to visit this time of year. Is, is the Mount Trumbull area accessible in the, in the wintertime or is it uh, get snowed in? Uh, we don't recommend folks go there between about December and uh, February. One of the things we like people to do is call the Public Lands Information Center in St. George. That serves as our visitor center. It also serves Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management for Northern Arizona, Southern Utah, and Eastern Nevada. It covers a huge range. Uh, the, the staff that work there have a, quite a responsibility to keep a very large terrain and all the differences between uh, the areas in their head, but yet yeah, definitely call ahead to find out what road conditions are like. We don't provide highly resolved road conditions because there's so many roads out there, it's just hard to know, but we want people to be as prepared for any condition that they might encounter. But yeah, call ahead and find out. But Mount Trumbull itself, not in the winter really, because it gets really icy and, and uh, muddy up there. Now, uh, Parashant National Monument, um, probably should have mentioned from the outset, is uh, managed by both the Park Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Um, kind of a slightly unusual operation there. That's right. Yeah, that was Bruce Babbitt's idea, former Secretary of the Interior, and he wanted to bring the two bureaus together to cooperatively manage a uh, monument. And so Parishon itself is made, it's the, of the million acres, about 800,000 acres is Bureau of Land Management, 200,000 is Park Service lands, uh, from Lake Mead. So Lake Mead is still titled to the land, but we manage it cooperatively with the BLM. We all work together in St. George um, as an integrated team. And it's, it's very unusual in the Park Service. Uh, I'm not sure there's actually another operation quite like what's going on at Parishant, but it's, a, it's been a wonderful experience the last five years that I've been working here. With all the roads out there, and as you mentioned, none of them are paved, uh, dirt and gravel, I imagine. 
Um, do you go out on a seasonal basis and, and blade them, smooth them out, or um, are we talking pretty pretty um, tough washboard? Well, <laughs> depends on the area. Um, we, you know, we have a mix of uh, federal roads from BLM and Park Service as well as county roads. So the county roads get more maintenance. Um, our roads, we only generally fix them if they've become truly impassable. So that gets back to that thing where we want folks to be prepared for any condition. You need to have a four by four vehicle that is really set up for those conditions. Uh, we get folks out there in, in crossover SUVs and you know, they, a lot of the vehicles these days come with real thin tires or the, the type of rubber is not correct for rocks. And so they end up with a lot of flat tires. So we even, we carry two spare tires in all of our trucks. So it just happens that, you know, you'll get one flat. One of the things that'll happen, you get a rock that hangs out into the roadway and it'll slice the uh, sidewall of your tire. And before you realize what's happened, your rear tire has also gotten sliced. So we've had quite a few of those. On our travel safety page, we've got a picture of a truck that actually had three flat tires. <laughs> um, was a member of the public um, that got a ride back to town to get more tires. Um, but we generally want folks to be prepared and a lot of vehicles don't have the right kind of tire. You want that all terrain style of tire. So we learned all about tires. I did when I started working there. Um, you want thick sidewall, 10 ply um, that can handle the limestone rocks, the lava rocks, and also the discarded ranching debris that always ends up in the road. So um, definitely tough tires and four wheel drive is, is uh, really an essential. So, so you're telling me my Subaru Outback probably is not a good vehicle? Well, there are some roads you can, you can go out there in a vehicle like that. Just make sure you got those all-terrain tires. I was actually seeing some manufacturers make them for those sizes, and, and I've seen folks out there with those, and it's great. Um, the Mount Trumbull Loop and Mount Logan, that's a great place for you to go. And the roads there are, for the most part, pretty okay, but it all depends on your experience. That's the one trick out there is everyone comes with a different level of experience and comfort. And we don't want folks getting themselves into trouble and, you know, not having cell service. And you may have to wait until somebody comes by. And depending on how far out you've gotten, it might be a couple of days before somebody comes by. <laughs> Good to know. Now, you mentioned a, a page on your website, and I stumbled across it the other day, that uh, was quite extensive in discussing the, the road conditions and, and what your uh, rig should be prepared for. And, and has some of those great pictures of those rigs that weren't quite prepared, including that one that was... Uh, on its um, hubs because they had to take the three tires uh, to get replaced. What, what's the, the URL for that page or what should people search for to find it at home? Uh, go to nps.gov slash P-A-R-A and for Parashant and look at the safety tab under plan your visit and then you will see the in the drop down menu the travel safety. Okay. We're talking today with Jeff Axel, the Chief of Interpretation for Parashant National Monument, um, a, a wild and rugged place that uh, is certainly on my bucket list for visiting in the, the coming months, hopefully. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jeff to learn more about this interesting place. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, 
Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. So Jeff, um, your website points out nine scenic drives that people might want to uh, explore. Um, we probably don't have time to go through each and every one of them, um, but could you give us an overview of what those nine offer and, and perhaps focus on one or two that visitors should definitely explore? Yeah, absolutely. So we are still working on developing a few other scenic drive routes to share with folks um, because, because we have a million acres. There's so much to see out there. And again, being that we're at this margin between the basin and range and the Colorado Plateau and the Grand Canyon, there's so much vertical relief that we have fantastic viewpoints that you can go and see. Uh, a few of my favorites are Twin Point, and that one goes out just about directly straight south from St. George. And it's actually one of the ones that's more accessible for folks that don't have the super burly four-wheel drive vehicle. And you get out there, and every time I've gone, there's nobody out there. I, I've never seen another member of the public out there, but there's a couple of great places to camp. I mean, you can literally set your tent up on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Now, that's not a great idea if you're a sleepwalker, <laughs> but I mean, you get the idea. It's, you can have this beautiful view all to yourself. And so that's a great one. And I like going out there. Another one that's actually a little more intimate, that's a real surprise, is there's not a lot of places you can drive down into the Grand Canyon down near the river. And one of those is our Whitmore Canyon Overlook Road that goes, uh, again, south from St. George and the uh, Mount Trumbull Schoolhouse. And you end up about a thousand feet above the Colorado River. And that's a great place to camp. It's still in the monument. You don't need a permit to camp there. We just ask that folks camp in the same places that others have camped so we minimize our impact on the environment. You can easily see whether folks have set up their tents and you're down in the Grand Canyon. You're looking up at these fantastic walls. And another thing I love about Whitmore Canyon Overlook is the lava flows down there. Now I'm a big fan of lava flows, Vulcan, we've got our own volcanic field here in the monument. And that's one of the spots where lava actually flowed down into the Grand Canyon, blocked the river, evaporated the river, and made a lava dam about 600 feet high. This is over 100,000 years ago, but because it's the desert, it's still plain as day, you can see where it was. And so you're in this amazing geologic landscape. So not only are you in the Grand Canyon, you're in this volcanic landscape too. So it's phenomenal. And the road actually just got fixed, but again, it's lava rock, so it's not for the faint of heart or vehicles that aren't ready for it. But that's yeah. a great one. Yeah. One thing I tried to research before, um calling you was how many people visit Parashant National Monument on an annual basis? And um, for some reason, the, the Park Service uh, website that tracks visitation doesn't even list Parashant. So 
Any, any insights in that? We are on, uh, we report up through the Bureau of Land Management, our, uh, our use statistics. So we get, we're not sure, actually, uh, which kind of seems a little strange. I've worked at parks where it's a lot easier to track the comings and goings of visitors and how many use the park in a year. Um, but we have so many roads into the monument that with, with our road counters um, and repeat traffic, uh, we, it's a little hard. We guess maybe, um, this is an educated guess, maybe 30,000 visitors a year right now, but that's going up. We've been discovered. There's uh, one of the communities that loves coming out on Parashant is the retiree community. They get sure. the UTVs, some call them side-by-sides, those um, four-by-four um, rigs, uh, and they come out sometimes 10, 15 in a row out of Mesquite or St. George, and they're out there. So we're getting discovered, so we're expecting that number to go up. Yeah. Now, um, one thing that also caught my eye is uh, Parashant has four wilderness areas. What experiences do they offer for backcountry travelers? You know, that's, our wilderness areas aren't heavily used. Um, we, we only get a few questions every year about them, but the folks that do go out there, again, they're going to find solitude. Um, the Grand Wash Cliffs Wilderness is a great place to meander through the Hermit Formation, which is this beautiful red and yellow and cream sandstone looking uh, rock layer. Um, we've got two wilderness areas up in the high country near Black Rock Mountain. But yeah, it, it, you're really going to have a wilderness experience there and not see anybody else. Yeah. What about wildlife? Well, because we've got such a wide range of elevations, we've got quite a few different uh, wildlife communities as well. Um, what do you think about, about that? You know, you, we don't see too many of them. They, they're pretty good at hiding. But in the low desert, of course, we've got Let's see, the desert tortoise, I think that's one of the best sightings uh, to make while you're out there. I've only seen two in my time at Parashant, and spring is one of the better times to see them. But we've got desert tortoise, and one of the things about Parashant that is unusual for a um, monument, um, but is part of our authorizing legislation and part of the visitor experience is hunting. And the Arizona Strip has some of the largest mule deer uh, found in the desert southwest. And so it's a very coveted thing to go on a mule deer hunt in the, uh, this is going to be up in your higher elevation, about 5,000 feet, but it's very popular for that. We have hunter guides that come out um, and lead folks on those hunts. So for folks that don't like hunting, that's, you know, that's an unfortunate side of the monument, but for other people, it's very meaningful and it's a long standing tradition to go out there and hunt. So they are very big mule deer. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's possible that I am, but didn't Aldo Leopold go down there to the Arizona Strip on a mule hunting expedition? And that's when he had his um, um, transformation into, you know, we, we have to do a better job at saving our wild places and our wildlife. I thought it was on the Arizona Strip. Oh, now you're giving me something to look up because I hadn't heard that story. Yeah, I think it was in the San, San County Almanac. Um if someone is looking for some Western history, is there a specific site they should seek out? I mean, the, the Kent Ranch maybe, or some of the other old ranches, the, the mine sites? Oh boy, yeah, we've got quite a few of those locations, historic ranch houses, cowboy shacks, um, corrals. Let's see, some of the best places to go for that. Um, let's see, the... Um, the Waring Ranch is a good one to go to, and that's out by Mount Delambois, which is an old volcano 
Um, and that's the Waring family lived and ranched there. Uh, the home is still standing. We actually just visited it the other day. Um, it's being preserved. It's going to get a new roof. Our archaeologist is working on that. And so, yeah, and there's, as you go through the monument, you'll see others. And it's just, it's one of those things you discover. We, we do have a few locations we point out, but we also like to leave people with that spirit of discovery where they can go out and just come across something and they might feel like they're the first person who's seen it in years. So sure. different spots, but that one is a good one. Um, and while it's not in the monument, the Mount Trumbull Schoolhouse is one of the sort of launching places south of St. George. It's a historic schoolhouse that had to be rebuilt, but you can learn all about the different Bundy family members that went to that school. And it was closed down, I believe, in the 1940s. So I understand, Jeff, that uh, part of the monument is the uh, historical lands of the Southern Paiute. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things that we're really focusing on at Parishant is working more with the Southern Paiute tribe. Uh, one of their bands, the Kaibab, is just north of us, and uh, the monument is surrounded by different uh, Southern Paiute bands. One of the things we met with uh, some of their tribal members and their elders, and the things they would say to us that we're particularly, it, it's disheartening at first, but we're proud of now. In the past, the Southern Paiute didn't feel welcome on their ancestral homelands, and Mount Trumbull was key to that, that area. And we have been working very hard ever since Jeff Bradybaugh was superintendent here to engage with them and invite them out on these lands and work cooperatively with them. As a matter of fact, we actually help them with education programs, getting their youth out onto these um, ancestral homelands. And so we're particularly proud of that relationship and look forward to continuing to grow it. And of course, um, one of the recent, uh, relatively recent tourist draws to these places are the incredible night skies. And I, I believe Parashant is a, a designated night sky park. Is that true? That is correct. Yeah, we are an international night sky province. And we have some phenomenally dark skies, especially on the east side of the monument. On the west side, you start getting into the light bloom from Las Vegas um, and Mesquite. But on the east side, yeah, it's some of the darkest night skies there are in, in the National Park Service. And so and yet one of the other things that we actually worked on, we, we work closely with Southern Utah University and Dixie State University on internship programs. And we've got a, an intern who came from the Kaibab Band of Southern Paiute. And her project was to get their band's reservation, the first night sky reservation in the United States. And so she was successful at that. And that's one of our things we're very proud of. Nice, nice. Now, it's hard to believe, but I understand Parashant once was home to an alligator. What, what can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, it was. Um, and that came, that was down at one of our areas that's great to visit in the Pakun Basin in the winter, the uh, Pakun Springs. And it's this collection of springs that flows year round. And for a time, that area was settled by a, a rancher who raised, among other things, ostriches. And someone brought him an alligator one day. And so he threw it in his pond and it thrived, barely. Um, he had to feed it dead chickens, I guess, every so often. But yeah, it was living in the pond. And then when the parks, or pardon me, when the BLM purchased the land and took it over, no one was sure if the alligator was still there. <laughs> so, hmm. um, and so they spent several days looking for it and a reptile rescue specialist came up from Phoenix and on the very last day managed to find it and wow. captured it. So its name's Clem and Clem now lives at this rescue facility in Phoenix. 
And I got to visit Clem a couple of years ago. When, it, when they captured it, it was about 125 pounds and, and maybe eight feet long. And it was very malnourished, way underweight. Um, it's now almost 600 pounds and 11 feet long. <laughs> and, like he's eating good. Yeah, and uh, it's doing well. It's um, it's got a friend now, Fluffy. It's in the same uh, pond with it down there, but it's still as ornery as it ever was. And uh, <laughs> uh, we're glad it's in a in a better place. Yeah. All right. We've been talking today with Jeff Axel, the um, Chief of Interpretation for Parashant National Monument down on the Arizona Strip, uh, a little bit north of Grand Canyon National Park. Jeff, thanks for giving us that introduction to Parashant. It sounds like an incredibly wild place that, uh, if one is well prepared, could really uh, have an enjoyable time. Absolutely. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. occasional series of essays, the traveler is examining how national parks might serve as an impediment to the sixth mass extinction. You can access previous essays, both written and contained in podcasts, at nationalparkstraveler.org. It was a headline hard to ignore. Species vanishing from many national parks. We think, or at least like to think, that national parks and their inhabitants are forever. But a piece in the New York Times back on February 3rd, 1987, brought reality into the picture. We shouldn't be surprised. Humans can be an alarmingly invasive species in their own right, impinging on natural habitat by erasing forests, turning over prairie into farms and ranchettes, damming rivers. A key section of that Times story said this, Many species of mammals are disappearing from North America's national parks solely because the parks, even those covering hundreds of thousands of acres, are too small to support them. Parks as vast as Yosemite and Mount Rainier have lost more than one-fourth of the species originally found there, and smaller parks have lost as many as 35 to 40 percent. That story was spurred by William Newmark, 
an ecologist who reached out to the National Park Service for species data for research into predictions that nature preserves are analogous to land bridge islands. Land bridge islands are islands that once were connected to mainlands and were transformed into islands by rising oceans. Because of their isolation, these islands see more species go extinct from their landscapes than find themselves a new home. Newmark took that theory onto land, into the western U.S. and Canada specifically, to see if the same principle applied to national parks. In a paper that appeared in the January 29, 1987 volume of Nature, Newmark wrote that most western national parks in the United States and Canada were simply too small to function naturally and support all their native species. Among Newmark's findings, Lassen Volcanic National Park in California had lost 43% of its once native species. Zion National Park and Bryce Canyon National Park, both in Utah, had each lost 36%. Mount Rainier National Park in Washington had lost 32%. Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado and Crater Lake National Park in Oregon had each lost 31%, and Yosemite National Park had lost 25%. Now, some of those extinctions had occurred prior to each park's establishment, but some occurred afterwards. And those big double-digit percentage losses can be somewhat misleading. In the case of Lassen Volcanic, where Newmark reported that 43% of the once-native species had been lost, That translated into a dozen mammalian species being lost. At Bryce Canyon, which was missing 36% of its native species, that translated into nine species. And it's important to remember that while Yosemite no longer can count grizzly bears among its existing species, Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks both count hundreds of grizzly bears. Plus, just recently, we heard that wolverines are again roaming Mount Rainier National Park. Despite that great news from Rainier, it's nevertheless important to keep in mind that once a species is gone from a place, it's not easily brought back. Look how long it took Yellowstone to recover wolves once they were killed off in the 1920s. And the on-again, off-again planning to bring grizzlies back to the North Cascades is off again. And those are charismatic megafauna that gain attention and public support, and sometimes opposition, for the return. All the while, human development and expansion goes on. Plans to push a 211-mile-long industrial road into the wild spaces of Gates of Arctic National Park and Preserve in Alaska and to auction off oil leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge are just two recent examples. How will those projects impact species? My alarm upon learning that more than three decades ago so many species were vanishing from western parks made me wonder how many more had been lost since then, so I tracked down Newmark. Unfortunately, he told me earlier this summer, there's a general lack of population monitoring for nearly all species found within U.S. national parks. National Park Service staff concurred with that assessment. The reason for that surprising lack of data perhaps shouldn't be too surprising. Just look at the sheer size of the national park system, 84 million acres in all, and think of the practically countless flora and fauna species within it. Take a park the size of Shenandoah National Park, which is 311 square miles, give or take. It might have 1,000 species of vascular plants, several hundred bird species flitting through it, and then many more species of fish, reptiles, invertebrates, and, of course, mammals. 
To get an idea of how many species might call a park home, look at the work Discover Life in America has done at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The group's goal has been to learn all it can about the estimated 60,000 to 80,000 species of life in Great Smoky. A decade ago, during the summer of 2010, I noted in a story for Audubon magazine that Discover Life in America had tallied more than 6,500 species that hadn't previously been identified in Great Smoky, and 907 species that were previously unknown to science. Come forward a decade, and those numbers have grown to 9,718 species that previously hadn't been known to live in Great Smokies, and 1,025 species previously unknown to science. The point, of course, is that there's a lot we don't know about plants and animals in the national park system, both those that have gone missing and those that haven't been recorded yet. If national parks are to serve as a barrier, or at least a slow zone, to the world's sixth mass extinction, we need more definitive answers to what's been lost and what we haven't seen, and understand the habitat needs to both support those species still in place and to bring back those that have gone missing. With that information, a justifiable approach can be taken to seeing those species have room to roam. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.